of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty. Appreciate you tuning in again this week for another episode. I'm coming to you from the state of Louisiana. I'm traveling right now with my family. I held a gospel meeting down in Brookhaven, Mississippi at the Highway 84 Church of Christ. We're on our way out to San Angelo, Texas, where I'm going to be holding another gospel meeting there, Lord willing, this coming weekend. So in the meantime, we're stopping off and seeing some friends and family along the way. But we're very happy to be with you again this week. Uh, this program is brought to you again by our website, ChristianResearcher.com. If you haven't been to our website, please take some time, go check that out. There's a lot of articles, a lot of free download materials on there. It's also a place where you will find a number of the books that we recommend for sale. Uh, we not only want to recommend good reading to our listeners, but we also want to provide them with a source where they can get them at an affordable cost and streamline the process of finding some good reading materials. We have several things we're wanting to do today. We're wanting to, first of all, discuss a reading assignment out of T. Desmond Alexander's book, From Paradise to the Promised Land. And then we're going to use some of the discussion in that this week's reading assignment to springboard into a discussion of some other areas, including uh, the corruption of creation and the Sabbath day. And then uh, in line, especially with the the topic of the Sabbath day, we're going to give some recommended reading for further study. So let's get started. We'll talk first about chapters 9 and 10. That was the last reading assignment that I gave from T. Desmond Alexander's From Paradise to the Promised Land. If you have picked up a copy of that and you're reading along with us, um, you'll, you'll be with us on chapters 9 and 10, obviously. And if you haven't done that yet, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy. I am really, really enjoying this book, and so are the guys that are doing the study with me. He's doing an excellent job of painting uh, big pictures of the Pentateuch and also showing how those stories and those lessons and points carry over into the New Testament. That's one of the features I like most about the book is after he discusses one specific aspect in the Pentateuch, he takes you in his last section of the chapter over to the New Testament and shows you where these same themes or concepts or passages are quoted or referenced in the New Testament and how we connect both Testaments together. I found that extremely helpful, and I think it'd be very good teachable material to use in a congregational setting. So in chapter 9, his focus is predominantly on the concept of the seed and tracing the seed line. There's a number of helpful things in there. Uh, one of the things that's most important to catch on to is how the book of Genesis uses the Hebrew word toledot, which in our English Bibles is translated as generations. And that phrase generation serves as markers throughout the book of Genesis and a structural marker so that you can recognize the flow and follow the concept of the seed. Uh, Alexander points out that the term seed is both a plural and a singular word. And we have to keep in mind both concepts, the plurality of the seed of the woman and then the singularity of the ultimate seed of both the woman and of Abraham. Uh, one of the best sections in chapter 9 was when you get down to the application of the New Testament section. He has a paragraph where he discusses 
and refutes replacement theology. A replacement theology is what dispensationalists accuse amillennialists of believing it. See, a dispensationalist believes that whenever Israel was selected, they were selected for salvation, and God made an eternal covenant and blessing upon the nation of Israel that he was going to be faithful to them and uh, save them ultimately. With that in mind, they accuse amillennialists of believing that Israel has been rejected and replaced with the church, thus the concept or the title of replacement theology. What Alexander demonstrates is that God never chose Israel for salvation, but rather chose them for service. And that according to Galatians chapter 3 and other passages, the true Israel of God or the true seed of Abraham are those who are by faith Abraham's descendants. And so God never chose Israel for salvation. He has not cast off the covenant that he made with Abraham, but he recognizes the seed of Abraham as being Christ, that singular seed concept, and also that all of Abraham's descendants are his descendants by faith. And so it's not a concept of replacement theology. It's a concept of the spiritual seed of Abraham, or what we would refer to as the remnant of Israel, or spiritual Israel, being identified as spiritual Israel and the church. So that last little paragraph itself, well, if you're not re- familiar with the concept of replacement theology or the the debate between premillennialists and amillennialists, you may miss out on that point in the last paragraph. But I thought he did a really good, smooth job of bringing that into, into focus. In chapter 10, he's focused mainly on how Adam's sin brought curses into the world and God has invoked a plan to bring salvation and blessings back not just to Israel again, but to the nations as a whole. From the very beginning of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and repeated in chapter 15 and 17 and 22, you have this concept of blessing for the nations. God has always had the nations in view and not just uh, the children of Israel. There's some really good material in this chapter painting the big picture view of the blessings flowing through the descendants of Abraham. That's very helpful. One of the the most helpful key points that I'd encourage you to focus in on is showing how the writer of Genesis draws parallels between the flood and the first of creation. What you have happening in the scene of the flood is a decreation of the world, and you're going back into the world filled without form and void and covered in water that you have in Genesis 1, and then the emerging of the dry land and a repopulating of the earth that was also brought forth in Genesis 1. So you have this uh, decreation and recreation theme, and I thought that material was really helpful. If you've never studied that, never been introduced to that theme, then this is a really good, clear, concise explanation of of that and showing how the narratives interconnect together. If you are familiar with it, this may be, uh, how to say, this may not be so in-depth, it may leave you lacking, but it does introduce you to the concept, and there's some footnotes to help you find some other materials along the way. One of the negative things that's brought up in this chapter, I wanted to point out, is on page 151, he has a little bit of Calvinism come out. When he's discussing the flood, he says, you know, the world was purged of the sin in it, but the the nature of humankind was not changed. And so, as a Calvinist, he's arguing basically, implicitly, that There's going to be a change in the nature of man that comes with the giving of the new law, according to Jeremiah 31. And he's 
basing all of that reasoning off of the Calvinistic view of total depravity. So you have to kind of be aware of that when you read it. It's a very subtle note that he makes there on page 151. He's not dwelling on it extensively, but he does have some Calvinism there. This brings up a point I wanted to, to mention. He, he argues in his closing paragraph that sin has not only corrupted mankind, but it has also corrupted all of creation itself. And so there's going to have to be a reversal of the curse on mankind and on creation in order for the world to be restored. And what he's basically prepping the way for, though he doesn't talk about it a whole lot, is the idea of a refurbished earth. So the refurbished earth theory is that when Adam sinned, the whole world was corrupted, creation was corrupted, and thus the creation has to be purged and purified, and one day it will be refurbished or recreated, and then we will dwell on that earth in an Edenic state that covers the entire world uh, for eternity. I read a book this week. I found a book I found really fascinating and helpful that I wanted to share with you. I think it's going to be a really important book. I haven't found much material either from a Church of Christ perspective or even written by denominational authors that go against the refurbished earth theory. But I had a book come up this week found called God's Good Earth by John Garvey. Again, it's called God's Good Earth by John Garvey. And what he is arguing against is the concept that all of creation was corrupted through sin. He's arguing the Bible teaches in Genesis 1-3 through and in Romans 8 and in other passages that people try to bring up like Isaiah 65 that the creation that's under consideration that was corrupted was humankind. It's not talking about the whole world. It's not talking about the earth and the rocks and the soil and all the plants and all the animals, but it's just talking about mankind and death enters mankind because man was corrupted with sin. So I think that's going to be a really helpful book because he deals with some problematic passages that refurbished earth people latch onto and try to teach their doctrine of a refurbished earth, and he's arguing against that and trying to argue that the concept of a corrupted earth or creation is actually uh, just a reformed doctrine that is, has its roots basically in Calvinism, and that before Calvinism came along, you really didn't have people taking that type of a position. So if you want to read some more on that, I would recommend picking up a copy of that book and reading it. I haven't read it in its entirety, but he has done a really good job in the first couple chapters, again, dealing with the problematic passages. And I read his conclusion, concluding chapter, and I thought, all in all, he did a pretty good job. Definitely worth looking into. Uh, the second problem that Alexander had in this chapter, in chapter 10, was on page 147. He leaves the door wide open for the Sabbatarian view. And basically, he argues that the Sabbath began on the seventh day of creation and has been recognized since. And that's problematic because we don't keep the Sabbath today. In fact, Paul told us that no one should judge us in Sabbaths or in other holidays. The Sabbatarians will argue that the seventh day of creation, when God rested, that was the first Sabbath recognized. And from that point forward, there has been a perpetual Sabbath taking place, and the Sabbath will continue until the Lord returns. Actually, what's happening in Genesis chapter 1 is the, chapter, the book of Genesis is not written in real time, if you will. So in other words, Genesis 1 was not written on the seventh day of creation. Genesis 1 is authored sometime around Mount Sinai. And so Moses at Sinai is giving commentary and telling Israel how they came into being and how the worlds came into being. He's offering commentary. 
What he's doing is he's teaching the Sabbath law that was invoked upon Israel in Exodus 20, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, was based on the principle of God resting on the seventh day of creation. He is not arguing that the seventh day of creation was the first Sabbath and that the Sabbath is a perpetual covenant from that day forward. Now, the Sabbath was a covenant given by God to Israel. It's based on the principle of God resting on the seventh day, but it, the Sabbath never existed until the law was given at Sinai. So that that comes up a little bit in this chapter. I think he leaves himself wide open for a Sabbatarian to take him to task on that. And it's interesting in my reading that I was doing just kind of on my own this week, the topic of the Sabbath came up a couple of other times. I was reading a book on, you know, kind of creation versus evolution, the, the concept of are the days of Genesis 1 literal days or figurative days. And a book I've come across is called Creation and Change by Douglas Kelly. Again, that is Creation and Change by Douglas Kelly. And by and large, that's a pretty good book, I believe. He takes the right position that the days of Genesis 1 are literal days. He, was a, he believes in a young earth. Uh, he takes to task the day-age theory. He takes to task uh, the gap theory and things of that nature. When he's dealing with creation and evolution type topics, uh, Douglas Kelly appears to be a pretty good guy. However, in his very last chapter in the book, and uh, he deals with the Sabbath question. When I saw that he had a chapter on the Sabbath, I was very interested in what his taken position was, and he leaves himself wide open uh, for seven Sabbatarians or Seventh-day Adventists. He argues essentially that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath and that the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday, and that is a very problematic position. The Catholics did not change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath was done away with because the Sabbath was made as part of the covenant with Israel. The Sabbath was the symbol of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. It was not a perpetual covenant from the seventh day of creation, and it does not still continue to this day. Thus, we are not judged according to Sabbaths. So, though Creation and Change by Kelly is probably a pretty good book all in all, he is dead wrong on the Sabbath, and you need to be well aware of that. So as I read through Alexander, I had this Sabbath topic from Kelly on my mind, and I saw that paragraph, and I just want to point that out. And it got my wheels to spin in a little bit, and I wanted to recommend some good reading on the Sabbath. Uh, the first thing I would recommend is George Batty's Debate Notes on the Sabbath. You can find those on our website at christianresearcher.com. We've printed that in a hardback uh, book. Uh, Brother George Batty, who is my father, he had two different debates, one in Georgia and one in Kentucky at a seven-day Adventist university. He debated both the Sabbath day and the Lord's day. and we've, He printed up a, a booklet of material listing all of the arguments that he could find made by Sabbatarians in defense of the Sabbath and against the Lord's day. And he compiled those in a book and tried to give answers so that whenever he had his debate, he gave out copies to everybody that was in the audience and he would note the the argument that was being brought up or had been referenced in the debate, and then he would tell people where they could turn over in their booklets and find the answer to it. It's really helpful in the debate that took place. And you can find that material. It's a wonderful comp compilation of material on the Sabbath Day and Lord's Day issue. If you don't have a copy of that, you really need to get that. If you want a hardback copy, you can find it on our website. Um, I think they're like $15 a piece, something like that for hardback. Uh, you can also download it for free. If you like reading digital books, you can have the material for free by 
uh, looking for it on our website or going to George's website, which is willofthelord.com. Another piece of material I would put out there for you, really good on the Sabbath, is a book called The Believer Sabbath by John Reisinger. That's called The Believer Sabbath by John Reisinger. And what he does is he shows how God rested on the seventh day and how the concept of rest carries throughout the rest of the Bible and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ Jesus and in the rest that yet remains, Hebrews chapter 4. It's a really small little paperback book. It's more like a track size, maybe about uh, 40 pages in length, but wonderful, wonderful material regarding the rest of Genesis 1 being typological in nature of Christ uh, being the rest of God and the rest that yet remains. You can also find a copy of that, The Believer Sabbath by John Reisinger at ChristianResearcher.com. Two books that I don't have on my website, but you can still find in print, or you can even find free or very cheap versions on Kindle on Amazon. One is The Sabbath and the Lord's Day by H.M. Riggle. Again, that is The Sabbath and the Lord's Day by H.M. Riggle. Uh, I remember Dad talking about when he was preparing for his debate with the Sabbatarians, he found uh, Riggle's material some of the most helpful out there at the time. Another book that's available is called Seventh-day Adventism Renounced by D.M. Canwright. Again, that is Seventh-day Adventism Renounced by D.M. Canwright. That's an old book written by Church of Christ preacher that is still available in print. It was also part of the Restoration Reprint Library series. And that does some really good stuff. One of the things that sticks out in my mind when I read that book, and it's always stuck with me, is he says, whenever you have a law given, you also have a statement about when the law was made and to whom the law was given. And he points out that in Exodus 20, whenever the Ten Commandments are given, you have that enacting clause that is given in verses 1 and 2. And that's as much a part of the Ten Commandments as the commandments themselves. And what Sabbatarian Seventh-day Adventists fail to do is they fail to recognize the enacting clause that it's given to Israel and is a covenant between them and God and is not a statement about all people for all time. This is also a problem, problem for covenant theologians who advocate that we are still living under the Ten Commandments. I say all that to say Ken Wright's book's really good. It's written by a conservative church Christ guy and really well worth picking up. One more book that I would mention on the Sabbath, and I'm going to clarify this by saying I have not yet read this book, so I just kind of preface that, but I really want to read this, and maybe I will in the near future and give some review on it. It's called From Sabbath to the Lord's Day by D.A. Carson. Uh, From Sabbath to the Lord's Day by D.A. Carson. The the author is a little, little bit deceptive here. I say it's written by D.A. Carson. It's more like he was the compiler of it, I guess. It appears on the cover as though he's the author, but he's only actually written a couple chapters in this. It's really an anthology or a compilation of a bunch of different articles written by various men. There's some really notable guys who have written in here, including uh, Richard Bauckham and uh, Thomas Schreiner. Uh, This is a book that is advocating New Covenant theology. It's advocating that the old law has passed away and we are living under a new covenant that's really rare amongst uh, denominational writers and especially guys from a Reformed background. Uh, It's going to be arguing with, dealing with some of the major arguments that are presented today and really giving a more comprehensive biblical theological approach to the topic of the Sabbath than what you will find in either Riggle or Canwright's material.
And so I think that's probably going to be a really important book. And I would I would put this caveat out there that these are Reformed writers, so there's probably going to be uh, some bones mixed in with the chicken, as we say. There's going to be a little bit of that um, Reformed theology, a little bit of Calvinism mixed in there. However, they are writing from a New Covenant perspective, which is pretty special. That's going to be a high read, a high level of reading invoked. When I look back on this list that I've provided you for, George Batty's notes are going to be the most simple, straightforward, to the point, most helpful in having discussion with a Seventh-day Adventist or Sabbatarian. If you want to understand more about the passages in the Bible and overall view and more of a book type of a format than speaking note style, uh, Riggle and Canwright's material is going to be very helpful, but it's going to be on a moderate reading level, kind of a moderate to advanced, I would say. John Reisinger's overview of the concept of rest in the Sabbath is going to be on a moderate reading level as well. And then D.A. Carson's book, From Sabbath to Lord's Day, definitely an advanced type of read. I would not make that my first read. You really need to read George's notes first and have a good grasp on the topic and what all is involved before you delve off in there into D.A. Carson's material. I want to say just a couple more things before we wrap up today. One, a couple weeks ago I mentioned a book called Seriously Dangerous Religion by Ian Proven. It's an apologetics book. I think by and large it's going to be a pretty good book. Uh, I've read some more in it and I just want to give a little update. He has one problem in his concluding chapter where he's kind of putting all of his material, all of his arguments together in a more concise package. One of the things I've found, I've discovered that is problematic is he believes in, basically in theistic evolution, it appears. He rejects the young earth creation concept and one of the reasons he does that is he's an advocate for trying to harmonize science and the Bible. He, he repeats over and over again that science and the Bible do not contradict each other, which I agree, but that doesn't mean that evolution and the Bible do agree. So though science agrees with the Bible, I do not believe that evolution agrees with the Bible. If you're going to define science as evolution, then I disagree with Ian Proven. That's what he's doing. He's trying to argue that... You know, all these scientists, they believe in evolution, and so we should quit arguing against their intelligence and realize that the Bible was never written to combat evolution. And I agree the Bible was not written to specifically combat evolution, but that's not to say that the Bible agrees with evolution. And my problem with evolution is that fundamentally it rejects the concept of God. And when you take a position in life that fundamentally rejects a belief in God, you cannot harmonize that with the Bible. Science is constantly changing. Scientists are discovering new things. Science are beginning to reject evolution. There are a ton of scientists out there who believe in a young earth and also believe in creationism, and they can do that while still being good scientists. You do not have to be an evolutionist to be a scientist or to be a good Bible theologian. And Ian Proven has just compromised himself because he has bought into the concept of evolution and that people are smarter than what we are giving credit for in the Bible. I just thoroughly reject that. I think all in all, the book is probably a decent book from an apologetic standpoint as to how to argue against world religions and to argue against the new atheist. But there is definitely the caveat that he is a theistic evolutionist. So I want to give an update on that in case... Anybody was remembering that or following along with it. That's all for now. It, I will give a reading assignment out 
For next week, read chapters 11 and 12 of From Paradise to the Promised Land by T. Desmond Alexander, if you're reading along. If you're not reading along, obviously there's a podcast. So these episodes are going to be online, and you can go back and read at your own pace. I would definitely encourage you to pick up a copy of From Paradise to the Promised Land and read along, at least the second half of the book where we've picked up in chapter 7. As we continue to go along, I'll continue to do what we did today, give you just a brief introduction if there's some really standout points I'll point those out if there are some points where we disagree like we did today. I will point those out as well to kind of give our, our readers a safe reading background. Thanks for tuning into the program. Again, be sure to check out our website, ChristianResearcher.com. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. Recommend the podcast to your friends. Share the episode with your friends. And leave us comments. If you will leave us comments on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts from, that will really increase our level of visibility in the podcast community. Thanks again for listening to the program. If you have any questions, feel free to write us at christianresearcher at gmail.com. If you have some book recommendations you want to make, send those to us at christianresearcher.com. Also, if you want to see a list, a written out list of all the books we've talked about in today's episode, you can go to christianresearcher.com, click on the podcast tab, and it will take you to a page where we list all the books that we're discussing in each episode. Thanks, have a great week, and Lord willing, we'll catch you next week. Better is our sacrifice, he paid the, he paid the price, the price, he paid it all upon the cross, no longer bound by sin or with eternal loss, he took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.